I want to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Today we are actually going to begin a new study in the book of Acts. But we're going to start our reading in Luke, and then I'll have you turn to Acts in just a moment. If you hold that place just for a moment, um, I'm going to give a bit of an introduction before we do a bit of reading. We're going to read a few verses here in this first chapter of Luke. We're going to turn to the 24th chapter of Luke and read, and then the first four verses of Acts in just a moment. A little over 25 years ago, I was finishing a doctoral degree at Oklahoma State University. At that time, I was an educator, and I was teaching chemistry and uh, a number of different biological sciences. I was pursuing a degree in educational administration, and I chose as my doctrinal thesis this subject, uh, institutional drift. Institutional drift. Now, of course, I did that for a number of reasons. Uh, it, it sort of fit the, the, the study and education that I had, but I was, you know, I was a member of a church, and I was, at that time, our family, Terry and I were looking for something like Eastland a Baptist Church. And, and so I wanted to find a place that was grounded and moored, uh, you know, it's anchored someplace that wouldn't be subject to the different variables that create drift. So that was something already on my heart. Um, I was asking this question, why and how do established and long-term companies, educational institutions, and churches, and other organizations lose their way? Now, you with me on the question? Here's where an organization started with well-intended goals, stated goals, and not that goals can't change in time, but if these were goals that one started with, and those were good goals, you know, good purposes, what were the factors and variables that caused an institution, a group of people that were committed together at one time to a certain purpose, what caused them over the, the course of time to move their trajectory to a different place? What caused them to, and I'll use this phrase, veer off course? I was looking for the dynamics and forces that caused deviation from the original goals and beliefs and practices that they once held. And of course, in that research, I discovered a host of variables, internal and external, that cause institutions to drift, to get off course. And by off course, again, I mean to deviate from originally stated purposes. Now, it is not my intent today or in the coming weeks to necessarily articulate those findings here from this pulpit, but rather to, to make this suggestion that every institution that does not give intentional effort to staying on course will not. That is just the way things work. That's, that's part of the forces of entropy. That's, that's just the way life is. And, and again, I can articulate in an academic way a lot of variables, internal and external, that create that. It's just sort of axiomatic that with time, without proper um, reevaluation, without deliberate effort to stay on the course that you originally were, individuals and people veer off. They move. Well, that is a concern that is currently on my heart. And it's not on my heart because I see that in our church really in any way. You know, I'm all more about preventative medicine. Uh, 
in advance than trying to catch up on the backside. I, I, it's just a time that I feel it's good for us as a church family to give that intentional effort once again to make sure that we know where we're going. And that we are what we say we're going to be and that we stay on that course. I think it's a good time for biblical grounding and self-evaluation as individuals and as a church to make sure that our trajectory does not change. I think it's good for us to give deliberate effort against some immovable standard to make sure we, we are in place. And of course, that immovable standard for us is this Word of God. And specifically, I think for us as a church family, we find the place where we're supposed to be in the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells the church you know, where it came from and what it is supposed to be doing. I want us to have that awareness and that desire. So again, in the book of Acts, the place as a church, I think we find this standard, our purpose, and our philosophy. Acts is a history of the first century church. And it provides for us a benchmark, a standard, by which we can compare ourselves against the Word of God. My desire is that as we go through these pages, we will rightly and of necessity compare ourselves against the mirror of the Word of God and where we need to make change that you and I will have the heart to be willing to do that. The book of Acts tells us uh, that this is the place where the church began. And I want us to compare ourselves against the goals of the church of Acts and its vision. And do we possess its enthusiasm? Do we have its source of power? Are we sharers in that that great effort that shook the world and turned it upside down because the Holy Spirit's working through the agency of men, that institution we call the church. So I believe a study in Acts provides us that opportunity and time to evaluate ourselves and Lord willing make any necessary adjustments that we need to, to stay true to our original charter, not found on the writing of men, but according to the writing of the words of God. And so with that reasoning, I want to ask you to stand and look with me in the book of Luke chapter 1. And today the intent is just genuinely an introduction. And then in the weeks to come we'll begin to go verse by verse through the book of Acts. The Gospel of Luke chapter 1 verse 1. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So here Luke is writing to a friend, a man named Theophilus. Um, don't know who Theophilus was. I, I'll give you maybe a hint of that later. And he wants to make sure that this man is rooted, around, uh, sorry, around, rooted and grounded in this truth. It's the first day preaching in a while, so I may need some uh, grace here. <laughs> and so he wants this man to have a perfect understanding. Chapter 24, 
of Luke's gospel. And so now Luke has gone through what we know as the gospels and the, the life and, and the death of Christ. And so now he's concluding his letter to Theophilus. And we'll begin our reading in chapter 24, verse 36. Jesus has died. He has been resurrected. He is now with his disciples speaking to them in verse 36. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see. For the Spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were yet believed not for joy, and wondered, he said to them, Have you any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of a honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And he said to them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened, opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, and this is the segue to the book of Acts. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye here in the city, Jerusalem, until you be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them that he parted up from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Acts chapter 1. Now Luke refers to his former treaty his former book, his first book that he wrote. Luke, his gospel was his first book. Acts is the second letter he writes to the same individual named Theophilus. The former treaty have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, and had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments, Lord, as we just give consideration to your intent, Lord, in writing not just the Gospel of Luke, but Lord, the book of Acts as well. Lord, I pray that we would now give our hearts to listen. Lord, just as Luke intended Theophilus to listen, that he may be rooted and grounded in the, in the truth of the Word of God, Lord, that he might live life as you intended. 
And so, Lord, I ask this same thing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing for that length of time. The book of Acts, and of course the Gospel of Luke, was written by a Gentile convert to the Christian faith. In the book, there's some speculation on exactly the date of its writing. Uh, it would be my opinion and the opinion of many other authors. It was probably written sometime in the years 50, 60 A.D., before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman general Titus, 70 A.D., but somewhere in that time frame, you know, about a generation, uh, by our standards, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we understand now in the writing style and by the person addressed and the two treaties that we see here uh, that the writer of the book of Acts was Luke. He is called the beloved physician, and he accompanied the Apostle Paul on his latter missionary journeys, and he, of course, wrote the gospel that bears his name. Luke is referred to by Paul in his closing salutations in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 14, as the beloved physician who is with me. We know this about Luke. He was a Gentile. We also know this, that Luke was highly educated. He was sophisticated. Uh, he was a doctor. And doctors in the ancient world, just like today, had to go through arduous training in order to you know, practice their profession. And we see his education and his sophistication in his writing style and in the manner in which he communicates. Luke and Acts has the broadest vocabulary. There's a greater number of kinds of words used than any other books in really the New Testament. Sometime after his conversion, Luke set out to understand the origins of his faith, Christianity. There was a time, and we'll talk about this later, that Paul was in prison for a couple of years. And in those times, Luke was with him. And Luke most likely used that time to do much of his study for the Gospel of Luke and, of course, the book of Acts. And he would have been in a place where he could have gone and found the disciples, many of them still, and asked them questions or had done this briefly in his life and then led him to write these books somewhere in 50, 60 A.D., but he wanted to understand the Christian faith and its origins. And his study led him to search out eyewitnesses, as Luke refers to. And in time, as he followed Paul himself, he became an eyewitness. Uh, and he saw many acts of God's power, miracles, and of course, the impact of God's message upon other people. Luke's purpose in writing this two-volume work, beginning in Luke and then in Acts, was to set forth a comprehensive and orderly history of the beginning of the Christian faith. Acts is referred to as something as a histiography. Um, a histiography is, is, is a history that's very specific in adding names and places and people to that historical you know, document. Um, the book of Acts lists over 100 different individuals. That's incredibly uh, amazing, it's precise. There are over 80 geographical cities and places mentioned in the book of Acts. And, and so it is a historiography. Christianity, and this is important to the writing to Theophilus, 
Christianity, as we all know, began in a bit of a tumult. Uh, you know, it, 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 its beginning was dynamic. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a very public life for three and a half years. He had an incredible following um, because of different political events that transpired. His, his following faded. Of course, he was crucified. You know, the Bible says the known world at the time kind of knew about this surrounding Jerusalem. This created a great stir among the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Jewish tradition and faith. And of course, then the Roman government was involved. And so Christianity was involved in a great tumult. There was considerable disagreement also where uh, who Jesus was and, and where Christianity came from. Was it something brand new or was it something rooted in the past that, that came from Judaism? And there was concern at the time that Luke wrote uh, that the Roman government was beginning to look at Christianity somewhat suspiciously. Now, we as a church family have gone through the book of Revelation, and we've, we've read through First and Second Peter, and we understand that during the days of Nero and Domitian, uh, Christianity was persecuted by the Roman government. And it was a violent and deadly persecution, but that, not, that did not really begin until after Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Roman general Titus, and these men arose to power. Preceding this time, uh, Christianity was perceived somewhat benignly. And so Luke is writing to really encourage that perception from the Roman government through this man, Theophilus, who most likely was a Roman official, to help him understand that Christianity is something peaceful, that it's something that should create harmony among people, that it was not a threat to the Roman government. It wasn't a new faith, which new faith in the Roman world was not permitted. It wasn't necessarily radical in the sense that they thought of radical. And that it was not and did not hold the intent of political, you know, subversion as, you know, that they, that they feared. Paul and other early disciples had already been proven innocent in many Roman courts. And, of course, we'll see that in the book of Acts. There was no subversive intent. So Luke writes and presents both his gospel and the writing of Acts to a man named Theophilus. And, and again, it is... My estimation that Theophilus, it is a Greek name, it means beloved, and uh, it's just an opinion, not knowing for sure that he probably was a Roman official that perhaps Luke himself had led to the Lord and was now trying to ground him in the faith. And what a discipleship text for this man, the book of Luke's and Acts, you know, book of Luke of Acts. And he wanted him to know the certainty of his faith and the origination and intent of Christianity. These books were intended to be a source of discipleship. And of course, because God inspired Luke's writing, these pages are part of the Word of God. And of course, then they are meant for our instruction and guidance in our Christian community. The book of Acts has a number of themes. And beyond a historical accounting of the origin of Christianity, it is, it is a record. Now, in your Bibles, you probably find it, you know, Acts of the Apostles, and it is not a record of all of the Acts of the Apostles. Numbers of people are mentioned. There's three men primarily in view in the book of Acts. The first, of course, would be Peter, and that's important because Peter had ties to the old Jewish faith. And then the next man primarily in view in the middle is a man named Stephen, who gives a great oration of Christianity's history arising from the Jewish faith. 
And then, of course, much time is spent focusing on the singular most important man in, you know, in church history as far as most of us would, would, would view it, and that is the Apostle Paul and his three missionary journeys, and then, of course, concluding with his imprisonment in Rome. So it's not a complete history, but a partial. And, and what it really is, it, it's a view from Jerusalem northward and then westward into Europe. It's, it's, it's for our purpose of describing how the gospel came to us, which is amazing. The only southern expansion of the gospel presented to us in the book of Acts was by Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, and not that the gospel obviously didn't expand because it really did expand into Egypt and of course we know into Alexandria and other places. But, but Acts is really fascinating. It's a book about Christianity's expansion northward up into Turkey and, and of course across into Galatia, the, the places that we would know as Italy and then Spain. And then of course coming uh, to us from the origination of Jerusalem. It is a book about the importance and the primary role of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now that's important. You know, our thinking, and by our thinking I mean in the time and place we live is Western. And Western thinking is primarily academic. And academic thinking values principle very highly. And we value pragmatism and how do things work and why do things work. And, and so we, if we're not careful, we can, we, we can go to the Word of God. And not that it can't be, but we, we relegate it to simply a textbook. But this is more than a textbook. This book is alive. This book not only holds truth, but it holds life. And when this book is read under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it can do more than just inform the mind. It can give life to the heart and to the soul. And that is something that Luke wants to remind us of, is that power comes not just from truth, but from the Holy Spirit. And they are both incredibly important to possess. It's a book that moves us beyond what just we can do, but it's a book that tells us what God can do through us. And I think that's incredible. It's a, it's a book about absolute truth. In our Western world, there was a time when we valued absolute truth, but today we live in what is called the postmodern world, which values not one truth, but many truths with little t's, and we argue over the silliest thing, and, and the book of Acts has no time for that. It presents a simple truth like this, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby they must be saved. It is singular and unique in its truth that you and I are utterly dependent. Mankind is utterly dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ to find a way to heaven through the forgiveness of our sins by the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That is not a point that can be debated and argued. That is a truth. And Acts reminds us of this truth. It's a book that reminds us that people can change. It's a book of transformation. It's, a, it's about what the gospel, once implanted into our hearts, can do to us. That it can make new men and new women, new young people of us. It can alter our lives. It can change our trajectory. It can give us a good, a good heart. It can give us a hope for life. It can make us something completely different. 
it's a book of reconciliation. You know how we need reconciliation in, in this divided world we live in. Luke desperately wanted to, to reconcile the difference between the Jews and the Greeks who are becoming believers. The Old Testament with the New Testament. He, he wanted the, the, the Roman government to, to be accepting of these truths. He, he didn't want to be seen necessarily just divisive for its own sake. Christianity is, is a faith of peace, not a violent rebellion. And perhaps most of all, it's a book about God and the way He works through His Holy Spirit to empower men to be His agency of change in this world. Now, can I, I just want to stop there. That's a lot of words, but I want that to soak in. And this is a big part of what's on my heart. What's Acts about? It's about God and His Holy Spirit. And how His intent is through His Holy Spirit to work through you to change and alter this world. It's about us being the light and salt of the world. And if you and I do not understand what God wants of us, then that mission will not be completed in the way that God really intends. It's a book about evangelism. It's about evangelism being the primary work of the church. And it's about this, that our mission primarily rests upon our dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God to empower us. In other words, it's, it's more than about just doing things right. It's about doing things right in His power. So it's a letter about expansion of the gospel in the time, in the time of the writing of Luke to what was the entirety of the known world, the, the area completely surrounding the Mediterranean, Jerusalem, Egypt, to Africa, up north, up into Turkey, uh, as far north as up into Germany, but then, then across into Italy and to Spain. And primarily, all of this was done in 10 years through the work of a few men. And we would have so much more humanly resources than they had, but we may not possess and measure the Holy Spirit that they did. And by that, you, you understand, I simply mean accepting and depending on Him. The key verse in the book of Acts, of course, is chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. That's the effect. That's what happens when you receive God's power, is you can't but help share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, it started in Jerusalem, and then it went to the uttermost parts of the world. So, I, I want to conclude this morning with some points of challenge that will be upcoming. And I want us to go ahead and begin mentally, and then maybe in our hearts to do business with these challenges. And the first challenge is this. We live in a day of methods and methodology. You understand what I'm, I'm saying that? An ever-changing methods 
and methodology. And, and we think intellectually that if we change methods, that outcomes will alter as well. Now, that, that, is, that is in large measure true, but it's not the whole story. It's very incomplete. We live in a day of methods and tactics, and secular means are employed, if we're not careful, to grow the church. Now, that does not make them evil, all of them, but it can sure lead to that if we're not careful. We live in a day of trying to be relevant. And Acts is a powerful reminder that success and victory and growth come with reliance and dependence upon a power beyond us. And that is God Himself and the Holy Spirit. It is a reminder. It is not a negative to do the best we can. It is not wrong to do things decently in order. It, it is not whatever our hands find to do, we should do with all of our might. We should be mindful of the community we live in. We, we should give great effort. And, and there's this, this is universal principle that we reap what we sow. But there's more than that. If, and I emphasize this word, if all we do, if all we do is mail out flyers, if all we do is to distribute tracts, if all we do is to give out literature and develop a first-class website and attempt to be relevant, then we'll be nothing more than a simple uh, secular institution employing the same means that a vacuum cleaning salesman might employ. Am I against them? Absolutely not, because you reap what you sow. But there's more than that. There is so much more than that. There's what can be done when a church family gets on its knees and prays. There is what can be done when a man asks God for help and takes that same track or piece of information and goes to another person and attempts to share the gospel with him in the power of God. I just... It is in my heart for us to be everything that God intends, and not just hard workers, but Holy Ghost-dependent individuals. If we want to see God work, then we need to invite Him to be part of what we're doing. And that sounds so silly. But we need to start inviting Him maybe in a greater way to be part of our services. We do a really good job, in my opinion. But with God's presence, it'll be everything it's supposed to be. It's a challenge to engage in prayer in a greater way, to step out in faith beyond human ability, and to engage in one-on-one -on -one evangelism as a personal responsibility. And secondly, Acts is going to challenge our selfishness, our private individualism that is ever escalating in American culture. If we as a culture were not already too individually autonomous, COVID and its isolation and its propagation of fear and its reorientation of safety over sacrifice is hurting us. It has reduced our faithfulness. It has diminished our commitment. It has taken us off mission. Now, I'm not speaking about Eastland Baptist Church. I'm just talking about as, as a movement. 
The magnification of let's do life and work from home does not work in New Testament theology. Acts rehearses and presents to us a church together, an ecclesia, and a called out assembly, loving, sacrificing, and serving one another for a greater cause, even in the face of danger. It's where community is highly valued, sharing triumphs selfishness, where the ecclesia is more than the individual, where we share all things common, where caring is more is of a greater value than anything else we can do. It reorients us to the church. And then Acts presents to us as individuals learning to sacrifice personal goals for the mission of God. Everyone in this room has an agenda, something we want to do, and, and it's not that all that's wrong, it's just our life can't be all about us. It's learning to lay aside something for the Lord. It's about giving life and time and effort to see the, the, the gospel of God advanced, maybe across the street and all the way around the world. As we go to this study, as we go through this book and we look at it, I, I want us to look at it as we would look at ourselves in the mirror in the morning. Do we need to change something? Is there something that needs to be altered? There's two things that I want us to be. Not all inclusive, but two things. I want us to be right. And I want us to be alive. Both. I don't want to be a white-washed sepulcher with truth only. I want us to be true and then I want us to invite God into everything we do and to experience the life that the Holy Spirit can give to us when we ask for His empowerment and His help. Where God is invited into every service, every outreach effort, every, every time we pray, I, I want us to be all that we can be and more.